0: I find it very disturbing uh, when I hear things across media or social media, and then they turn out not to be true. And I seem to be having that experience a lot. So it's get, like I get something, and people assert something as fact, like this really happened, and then it turns out that it didn't happen, and it's not true. And you say, well, how do you know it's not true? Well, because I look at what happens in the courts, and what when it actually goes before, uh, you know, some through something through a legal process. And then uh, I see what, you know, the truth comes out. So for example, if this, uh, a lot of the media that I heard, uh, social media was making the statement that there were illegalities in the 2020 election here in Pennsylvania in the presidential election. That there was actual election fraud going on, wide scale election fraud. And people were asserting this right and left and I thought, wow, this is a real problem in our own state here in Pennsylvania. Well, turns out that there are no court cases about this. And if there had been actual evidence, you would see the court cases. You would see something of it, and it's nothing. That turned out to be completely untrue. It's false. And yet our previous president, President of the United States, was was asserting this from, from the presidential podium as true. False. I think of this uh, student from Covington Catholic High School uh, who was in Washington, D.C., and uh, his name was Nick Sandman, you might remember. And the media came out, they had a picture of him standing there smiling, and, and the story was there was this Native American uh, demonstrator, and, and Sandman and his his cronies were coming up, and and, inf- and um, confronting him and getting in his way and blocking his way and all of this. And, and uh, this was a big media story. Well, I thought, wow, this guy is really terrible. And you show this picture of him smirking. It's like, what, a, what an awful guy. Well, then you look at what actually happened in the courts and he won a, a settlement, a legal settlement, a defamation suit. That never happened because it was settled out of court. He got money from CNN and from the Washington Post. Why? Because he was slandered. So it shows you that the whole story was wrong. It was actually the opposite. And this guy, this Native American, was, had a kind of pattern of, of being dishonest. So the story was the exact opposite. And so this guy was slandered. Yet, you know, someone who became a member of the, pres- of the president's current The current president's cabinet was calling this guy a terrorist before. This Nick Sandman. So you know you go through a number of these if if you're like me and you feel like, yeah, what can I believe that's true? (laughs) Like, can I believe anything that I'm hearing across media or social media? Can I can I trust anything? Where can I get truth? Just give me some truth, as John Lennon said, right? Where can I get certainty about? Is there is there certainty anywhere? It's almost like an epistemological crisis that we have, that is you know, a, a, a crisis on how we come to know what we know, how we come to know what is true. That's something that we're engaged with. The whole, the whole nation is engaged in that. Now, you might say to me, all right, Sam, I have a trusted news source, I have a trusted media source or social media source, and I go to that source and they tell me like it is. Like, I I get it straight from them, and so I trust them, and I can go to them and get it. Okay, you might have a media source that you trust, but these days, when you're listening to your source, when you're reading your source, you have to do it knowing that there are millions of people in this country who disagree with you. (laughs) Millions of people. I don't care what your source is. There are millions of people who who are saying that's false. And you're saying, no, no, I trust this. This is true. So this is a crisis. You know, gone are the days when Walter Walter Cronkite could sit there and say, and that's the way it is, you know, and everyone, like, turned off the TV, said, well, that's the way it is. Even though, you know, it was never actually that's the way it was, never the way it was, but at least we all believed that it was the way it was. And so, you know, we could say, here's something that's true. We can't have that anymore. A lot of people bemoan this. They say, this is terrible. You know, we can't know. We can't know what's true. And I actually think this is, there's some good parts to this. this is, there's something good here because it's taking all of us, making all of us take a step back and ask the question, how do we know what's true? It's, it's causing all of us to ask this question because all of media is challenged. It's causing us to say, what is truth? Where can we be certain? Is there, is there any place we can be certain? Well, we can get some help this morning from the ancient book of Revelation. So if you would stand with me while I read from beginning from chapter 13, from the book that I've come to love. And I just want to say before we read, I'm going to be reading some passages starting in chapter 13, and you're gonna, we're going to first read about this second creature, this second beast that comes out of the earth. And he's not really named there, but later on, in chapter 16, we read a verse that talks about the false prophet. And just so when we read, everybody, all the commentators and scholars, they all seem to agree that this false prophet is the same entity as the beast coming out of the earth. It's just he isn't named there, and then John later, he seems to be doing the same thing, and John calls him a false prophet. So I just want to kind of help us understand that before we read. That's what we're reading. We're talking about the same guy here, and then I'm going to read some some passages that are printed in your bulletin. I think on page twelve, from the end of the book of Revelation, where we get a contrast of the true prophet, true prophecies. Okay, so again, Revelation, chapter thirteen, beginning in verse eleven. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence and makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth telling them to make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived. And it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who, not, who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. And in chapter 16, verse 13, And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet Three unclean spirits like frogs. And Revelation 19, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God. For the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. And then Revelation 22. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I'm coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, And the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, Surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. All right, All right, we're back in this book. Let's review some of the characters that we're dealing with here. Let's start with our author, John the prophet. And John is a prophet. We know he's a prophet because in the beginning of the book we find out that the book of Revelation is three things. And what were the three things that the book of Revelation is? Does anyone remember the three things? One of them? What's that? I hear a letter. Uh, Close, close. Thank you, a prophecy. A letter, a prophecy, and the third one was apocalyptic. Apocalyptic, right? Remember, those are the three things that help us interpret this book in the right way. Prophecy, a letter, apocalyptic. One of those is a prophecy. Why? Because it's coming from a prophet. So he's telling us this is a vision that he had, and, and he's speaking to us as a prophet. In fact, in the middle of the book, Angel shows up and says, John, here's your job. Angel is dressed probably not unlike the way I'm dressed right now. And Angel says, John, here's your job. You got to talk to people. You got to tell people these things. You got to write them down. And in fact, you got to prophesy to the whole world about this. Why? He's the prophet, right? And then we just read here in these passages at the end of the book of Revelation, right? Angel and then Jesus show up and say, You know, you and your brothers. You're the prophets. So what we're dealing with here is the the true prophet, the one who's saying, I have this prophecy, and he's not only the true prophet, he also seems to be the final prophet. We've seen all along through the book, have we not, that that John takes the themes of the Bible to wrap them up. He makes allusions to all the prophets that have come before, all the books in the, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, and in the New Testament, he's tying it all up. It's like he's hemming the garment of biblical prophecy. And so he's bringing these things to an end as, as, as kind of the final product, um, prophet, right? The climax of prophecy, as Richard Baucom would say. Okay, bringing it to an end. And that's our author, the final prophet, and he has a vision and he sees some pretty bad characters, right? Uh, and, and the baddest of the bad is the dragon, right? The dragon is there and he keeps coming up. And the dragon has his, his, his cohort, his tools, the beasts from the sea, right? The beasts from the land or the false prophet and the great prostitute. And we've been talking about them, right? But something to realize that John is showing us here is that the, the dragon can't create anything. The dragon can't come along and make something new. What he does is he brings something out of what's there. He twists what's there. He he changes what's there and perverts what's there. And so we saw when John actually told us what he was talking about. He said, look, this is the number of the beast. And we found out this was the, the central government of Rome. Well, there's nothing wrong with a centralized government. That's a good thing. God has ordained the state. But under the power of the dragon, it's a beast, right? The Roman Empire becomes a beast. And then we looked at the economy, right? And there's, there's nothing wrong with an economy, that's good. God delights in just business transactions. It's a good thing to have an economy, but under the power of the dragon, becomes a mother of prostitutes, right? He takes these things that are good and he twists them. And actually, these things that John is describing, if we take a step back, they map pretty well onto the great cultural engines that are present in any society, in any civilization, any time. They look different, but anywhere people gather together and have a life together, you're going to find these cultural engines. I call them cultural engines because they both generate the culture of a people and they reflect the culture of the people. And they're always there. And John, you know what I'm saying is, what he's describing in these monsters kind of maps pretty well into what we see in all cultures. And today, we're gonna look at this second one, the beast rising out of the earth, who comes to be called the false prophet. Who is that? Who do you think that is? This false prophet, this beast from the earth? Well, to find out, We should go back into John's world, find out what it would mean to the the people he's writing to because what is the book of Revelation? It's a letter, right, as you told me. And so because it's a letter, we would expect it to mean something to the people that he's writing to, and so it does. If we go back into the first century, into the Roman Empire, what do we find? What we find is the imperial cult. The imperial cult. Now you say, what's that? The imperial cult is a system of a lot of different groups of people who come together and instigate and propagate and sometimes enforce the worship of the empire, especially the worship of the emperors. And this was something that started early in the 2nd century B.C., 195 uh, B.C. The first temple was erected to Roma, all through the second century, then the first century before Christ, you saw this this gather momentum, and it was a movement. And it's hard for us to appreciate the effect, the power of this engine in the ancient world. Um, It was governed by community leaders. It was funded by the social elite. And it was powered by a professional priesthood. You had the imperial priesthood that cultivated worship of the emperor and it was like, they, they would have this, this council that would get together. And it was like mayor, mayoral council of the different cities. How can we promote this? How can we propagate this? How can we encourage people? And this is what it meant <coughs> to be a good person in those times. It was especially strong in Asia Minor, the home of the very churches to which this letter was written. And you could tell this even, even before this time in 29 BC, the first, the first temple to an actual emperor was erected. Guess where it was built? Guess where? A place called Pergamum. And if that sounds familiar, it's because you've read about Pergamum earlier in the book of Revelation. It's one of the, it's one of the churches to which this letter is addressed. Pergamum, remember where Satan's throne is, right? So that's happening here. And it's true, actually, of all the letters. Of all the seven churches, again, to which this letter is addressed, all of them had at least one temple to an emperor, some of them more than that. This was just a feature of life, and, and it was especially big, as I say, in, in Asia Minor. So they, they had this, this thing called the Asian commune, the commune of Asia, because... These mayors would get together and say, this is what we have to do to help people understand the way the world is and how to be a good citizen. And, uh, you know, even, <laughs> you know, if you lived in Ephesus, let's say you lived in Ephesus and you were going to the library, we had a great library, <laughs> and you're walking to the library, you would go by the Temple to Domitian, this is later on the first century, And the temple to Domitian had in front of it a statue 22 feet high of the emperor, Domitian. 22 feet high. Can you imagine that? It's like three and a half times as tall as me. And I don't know, you might have to do something like genuflect or make a symbol as you're going past to show that you're a good citizen, that this was in your face. This was like dominating you wherever you were in Ephesus. You wouldn't look her over and there it is, Domitian, you know. That's how big this was. I say it's hard for us to imagine the power of, of this engine, how strong this engine was. So that was what was going on. And if you look at chapter 13, verse 14 there, what do you see them say? It tells them to make an image. Boy, that just sounds exactly like what you would see in Ephesus. right? So if we look at what's going on here... In the passage, it tells us what this second beast is doing, right? And what are, what are the kind of highlights of it? Verse, verse 11, he speaks, it spoke. Verse 14, it deceives by telling. Verse 15, it gives breath. In other words, it's the way the culture is communicating, it writes the narrative, it's the mouthpiece. And the imperial cult, all of it together, sometimes people divide up and say, oh, it was the priesthood. Oh, it was, it was the Asiarch, um, the president of it. But no, no, I think it's all, the whole system together was the mouthpiece of their culture. It told them what it was, what, what the world was like, the way to look at the world, and what it was to be a good person. In other words, the imperial cult was the ancient media. That's what we're looking at here. And it had, verse 13, A voice like a dragon. And it propagated lying words, deceptive words, about how the world really is. So I would would submit to you, that's what we're talking about when we're talking about John's false prophet. We're talking about the, the ancient media of that time, which was the imperial cult, the mouthpiece that told you this is the way the world is, this is the way you should look at things. Now you might say, "Ah, oh, I, don't, I don't like that. It's not as as exciting as some other interpretations of, of the false prophet." Okay, well, you can call it, if you want to interpret it differently. That's fine, but you have to interpret it in some way that does this, that says the false prophet is communicating falsehood about God, about life, about the way the world is. So, what would that mean for us today? as we're reading this. What what would that mean this information about the false prophet in the ancient world? What would be like what would that mean for us in our day? Well, you know, if you've been listening to me preach on the book of Revelation, I I'm, I'm not I'm not I don't take kindly to finding current headlines in the newsfeed in the book of Revelation's visions, right? I'm not one who tends to look at the visions and say, oh, look, look what I just saw on Twitter. This is what's happening in the book of Revelation. I'm not one who does that much. You know that, right? But I'll tell you one thing. I might be convinced, <laughs> I might be convinced that we're living out the pages of the book of Revelation in, in, in the end times, not just end times, meaning from the time that of Pentecost, to the time that Jesus comes back. Not those end times, but the end times of the end times, the real end times, the real last days of the last days. I might be convinced. I won't be convinced by, you know, the Beatles having long hair and playing the guitar sounding like locusts. That's not going to convince me. I'm not going to be convinced by helicopters or, you know, or even, even the establishment of the secular state of Israel. It's not going to convince me. It's not going to do it for me. But I'll tell you what will. I'll tell you the one thing that will convince me, almost convince me, or at least get me going, (laughs) to say maybe you're right, that we're in the last days of the last days. You know what it is? It is this. It is a highly effective false prophet. It's a worldwide highly effective false prophet. That's what would get me going. Well, I think that we have a false prophet in our day. Is it the false prophet? Maybe you can tell me. I don't know. But it is a highly effective false prophet. I would say there is a false prophet in our day. I'll tell you something else. He's in the room. The false prophet is here with us. He is in the room. In fact, I can point him out to you. And I will right now. Here at Ironworks Church, I will point out to you the false prophet. He is right there. I don't mean the communion table. I'm not meaning that. What's on the communion table? It's right here. This little black mirror, okay, this little box. Here it is, folks. Here's a false prophet. This is... The fire coming down from heaven. And it even has its own lightning connector port. Right? That? <laughs> this very month, it was just this month, Apple Corporation market capitalization exceeded $3 trillion. $3 trillion. It didn't stay up there, but it'll, it's, it went down, but it'll go back up. $3 trillion. There's never been a company that has been worth so much as Apple Company. $3 trillion. Then that means that it's more valuable, and this has been said, more valuable than Boeing, than um, Coca Cola, Disney, ExxonMobil. McDonald's, Netflix, and Walmart combined, combined. That's how much it's worth. Now that's effective. There's never been a company like this. Now I'm not saying that Apple company is evil. I'm not saying that in the board meeting, when all the principals get around, they, they gather around the board meeting table and there's a pentagram in the middle, you know, and they say chance. And they say. No, I'm not saying that Apple is, is evil. Although, you know, when you program a phone to be obsolete when the new model comes out, I don't know, maybe that, maybe that is evil. <laughs> or maybe it's just kind of a good marketing strategy. Maybe it's a good business strategy. I don't know. You tell me. No, but seriously, I'm not saying that the company itself is evil, but what it's channeling, and all of these media companies, the Instagram, the Facebook, the Twitter, what they're, all cap- what they're all riding is the wave of the dragon's wiles. That's what's happening. It's channeling the false prophet, the media of today. And, you know, as you're hearing this, you probably think, wow, man, I've I got a really... Um, maybe smash my phone or smash my kid's phone, you know? And if, if you're a parent, of course, of course you need to be careful. Of course you need, to, you need to be very careful and you gotta make sure this is not a right. No, it's not a right, it's a privilege, right? You wanna be careful, but you can't step away from it because it's the mouthpiece of the culture. You can't step away from the engines of your culture. You can't just get, you say, okay, I'm going to shut it out of my life altogether. You can't do that. But what you can do is realize what it's doing, what it's channeling here. Because this is the media mouthpiece, right? And it shapes our thoughts, right? Its omnipresence determines the parameters of the conversation, right? It tells us what's acceptable, and it tells us what's beyond pale, doesn't it? It opens and closes the Oberton window. And so it might sometimes align with justice and truth. It might sometimes align with the purposes of Christ. But you should know this is opposed to Christ. Make no mistake about that. It's opposed to Christ. It's the way the dragon works. It's to use falsehoods and false ways of looking at things. And so what does the media do for us? What does our current-day media do for us? It presents for us a picture of life without God, where God isn't necessary, where there's no need for Jesus Christ, and it is 100 times more effective than the imperial cult in doing that. So that it becomes reasonable to us to think, it becomes reasonable to us to think that you could spend a day without God. Or you could spend a month without reference to Jesus Christ. Any reference at all? Now, friends, if what we believe about Jesus Christ is true, that's not only bizarre, it's impossible. And yet, podcast after podcast, movie after movie, Snapchat after Snapchat, multiple episodes of K-dramas present to us just such a just such a world. God is not necessary, doesn't it? Can you say amen, somebody? (laughs) Thank you. (laughs) That's the real problem. You know, never mind these um, relatively less important stuff, like what you believe about elections or masks or, or vaccines, less important stuff. This is the real problem of what we have in our little black mirror, our little black box. And you can see this, you know, all you need to do is contrast what we've learned from the book of Revelation, from John, the true prophet, right? All we need to do is contrast that with what you're getting every day from this. What this teaches you is reasonable, shapes your thoughts. This mouthpiece, right? So just take What we've learned already from from the book of Revelation, what John, the true prophet, has talked to us. Take a subject of hell, right? What does a false prophet say? It is utterly ridiculous for you to believe in an eternal hell. Utterly ridiculous for you to accept eternal punishment of hell, false prophet. True prophet says, oh, believe it. Believe it and tremble. False prophet says, prayers of petition are just shouting out to the void. When you issue a prayer petition, you're just speaking out into the ether. Where Rather than what true prophet says, prayers of petition are that which rivets the attention of an almighty father. False prophet says, ah, economic oppression of people, that's just the way of the world. It's not something you can do something about. That's just the way that things are. Is economic oppression? You just gotta live with it. True prophet says, rather, it is a grave, grave sin, which we, can, which we must do something about in the way that we act. The false prophet says, gender is an optional accessory in close relationships. Take it or leave it. True prophet says, no, gender is the gift. Gender is the gift that builds intimacy in our close relationships. False prophet says, you don't need to live with Jesus Christ. It's optional. It's it's not something that you really need, Jesus Christ. True prophet says, actually, you know, we're vines. We're branches on the main vine, which is Jesus Christ. And if if you don't abide in Jesus Christ, then it's, it's not life that you're living. It's, it's some withered uh, example of a life. It's some shriveled excuse of a life. But rather, Jesus Christ is the center of the burning emerald, the source of all truth and beauty and goodness. Well, that's what we got. Our black mirror box, and we have the truth prophet. What's it going to be? it going to be? That's why you get up in the morning and read your Bible. That's why you do that. Because God knows what we need. He knows this is going to be in our ears all the time, in front of us. And he knows how can we, we, we need some place where we can be certain. And so he's given to it to us in black and white here. Certainty. So, if we take John as the final prophet, the way he's being represented here, then chapter 22, verse 7, it means something, right? What does he say in chapter 22, verse 7? Keep the words of the prophecy of this book. He's telling us something as a final prophet, that, prophecy, that we're entering into a time, he's saying to his audience, where true prophecy comes to us now in a book. And so he ends the book there, chapter 22, verses 18 through 19. He ends the book with that warning against adding to, that is, innovation, saying, you know, we need to get past the text. We need something beyond the text to stake our lives on. Or taking away from, that is, suppressing some of, the, some of what's in the prophet's words. Saying, we can't talk about that here. We don't feel like talking about that here. Adding to or taking away, and John, John, in saying this, he's referring to his book, the book of Revelation that that we know as the book of Revelation. But I think it's fair to to apply this more broadly because he's he's tying up all the themes of all the books in the Bible, and so he's signaling to us as the last prophet that how we hear from God moving forward is by heeding the book. See, God knows the media is gonna be in your ear. He knows you have this in your face. He knows it. It's the engine of the culture. Whether it's the imperial cult or a little black mirror, doesn't matter, he gave us the scriptures, the true prophecy to help us navigate our lives until Christ returns. And so he gives us this, Do you wanna escape deception do you wanna be able to have some place you know that's certain? Spend time in the Bible. Spend time in the words of the prophet. Why not, why not this year make it a regular part of your life? Why not, why not, you're planning out your year now. Why don't you make it this year where you make a change and really step into the words of God? It's what he's given it to us for where we can have that certainty. Make it daily. Make it regular. So, the most important thing that we get from heeding the words of the book, John tells us in verse 10 of chapter 19, what does he say? The most important thing we get by attending to the words of this book is Jesus. It's Jesus. It's a reason why... He, You get up in the the morning and read your Bible every day just to remember who you are, just to remember what's true about the world, what's really true about the world. And so he says in verse 10 there, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of true prophecy. All answers that we need, they flow from that answer, all truths from that truth. The lamb who was slain who's on the throne. He's the one who's never mistaken, never issues a retraction, never lies, never is too quick to speak. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ that gives you the truth that you need to ground your life. And it's that testimony to which we now turn as we turn to the table here. The table that proclaims the truth that gives us that life. Please stand.